Santa Maria. Da 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 da. Address it to my wife. I'll say I won't be calling home. I gotta start a new life. Ba da da. Let's take a letter, Maria. Address it to my wife. I send a copy to my lawyer. I gotta start a new life. When a man loves a woman, it's hard to understand how she could find more pleasure in the arms of another man. All work is no pleasure. Was I wrong to work nights to try to build a good life? All work and no play has just cost me a wife. Ba da da da, take a letter, Maria. Da 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 da, address it to my wife. Ba 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 da da, say I won't be coming home. Gotta start a new life. Ba da da da. You have been things, but most of all, a good secretary to me. It just so happens I'm free tonight. Would you like to have dinner with me? That song's amazing. It's a huge violation of... Uh, song's a huge, a huge uh, violation of uh, HR uh, directives for any industry. He's like, well... Uh, I just broke up with my wife. Uh, what are you doing tonight? Uh. <sighs> oh, someone's saying I'm looking like Sam Hyde. Damn. No, I need to get a haircut. I need to get, I need to take care of this. It's far too much. I'll do it soon. I look very nice and very, uh, very presentable. I can clean up a little bit. But yeah, I look uh I look a little disheveled today. That's fine. Ugh, but it's true. I should uh I should do better. Are these streams astroturf? Someone asked. That's an interesting question. What does that even mean at this point? Like is am I being paid secretly to do them? If I am, I don't know it. That's all I can say. Which does not mean that I could not be a, uh, a, a unwilling dupe, a useful idiot. And I think I probably am to some extent, but not to any greater extent than anyone else. So therefore, no reason to sweat it. Take a letter, Maria. Da, 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 da. Address it to my wife. I gotta start it. Look, it's gonna have to just be Twitter forever, okay? There's no escaping Twitter. It is, it's the vessel. It cannot be shattered without unleashing uh, spirits that are otherwise going to destroy the Republic. So uh, it has to be embodied somewhere. The energy has to be channeled through some crystal. And none of these other ones can do it uh, because uh, they are a reaction to the thing itself. And that means that they, by definition, miss some element of the thing. They're just this... Uh, Broke off shard.
So you got Blue Sky, which is like nice Twitter, right? Is that the idea? Like, what if it was nice and it had nice people there? And then Threads, which appears to be brand Twitter. And because those two, those are the two things that are being shed by the current uh, uh, Elon Musk Twitter, right? Are the sensitive souls who don't like all of the elevated, uh, based content. Uh, and, of course, the advertisers who are similarly alienated from that sort of presentation. And so uh, Blue Sky is, hey, what if we all were nice to each other? And then uh, Threads is, hey, what if we got all those brands and celebs back? And they were just posting about how awesome it is to use their product. And yeah, you can see what your stupid friends are saying, but the the the, the focus, the eye of Sauron is fully fixed on the uh, uh, on the, the glories, the brands, and the celebrities. And so you get these things that don't have the whole complement of possibilities, which is, I, I think, that Eventually, the Saudis are just going to buy it out, just like they did the PGA. The Saudis have brought billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must bring it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. At this point, all non-extraction industries are loss leaders for petrocapitalism. They can't run a profit. The government can give them, lend them money to keep them afloat, but that is it. They cannot make money on their own terms because our productivity has stalled and collapsed. This is what happens at the end stage of a, of a mode of production when its contradictions have clogged its innards uh, and when you have uh, broken the conveyor belt between human energies and productive economy. People are not motivated to produce at any level, and so they don't. Motivation means many things. For a long time in America, it meant a promise of a uh, higher station, and it's just, it's gone away. Like, the belief in the system has gone away, and so the energy, you know, it is, the rate of the profit to fall is, is uh, one of the really more mystical concepts within Marx, because, like, you can say on a, on a billboard, oh, it's, you know, only humans can create value, and therefore, if you have a, a system that does not have has diminishing human inputs, then it can't create profit. But what that actually means is human mind put to the task of production, and it just it can't go beyond a certain uh, threshold once the positive energies that are unleashed by society, uh, uh, turn into just pure pathological uh, back uh, uh, blowback, which is what happens when the productive engine stalls out. Because this problem is at the heart of capitalism. It's displaced by creation of empire, the spatial fix, as David Harvey calls it. But over time, that spatial fix is overcome by the totalizing of capitalism. There's nowhere else to spatially extract outside of the system. And so it's going to start eating itself. It's been eating itself for about 40 years now. I mean, it was eating itself the whole time, but the uh, massive destruction of capital created by World War II gave the United States an opportunity to create a new or uh, relationship between subjects and their government and their economy, uh, as though those are different things. I mean, the government and the economy anyway. 
uh, they're only refracted, you know, culturally as two different things. They are, of course, a holistic thing, one, one organism. Uh, but that relationship was temporarily and, and expanded. This concept of citizenship and rights was temporarily expanded. Uh, a, a net, a safety net, undergirded how far you could fall, but at the same time gave real potential benefits to advancing. Now, it's all predicated on the ruthless uh, bringing into capitalist uh, uh, supply chain the economies of the rest of the world, where instead of having the same process happen that happened in Europe, where you have a domestic uh, uh, capitalist class like build up capital and then reinvest it locally, instead you have uh, what, what is better for the center of that system, which is uh, just extraction of raw materials at the lowest possible prices so that they can be created at the high capital-intensive uh, in industry in the center, drawing out from the, from the periphery to the center, like, like literally blood-sucking. What that means is that there is no uh, growth here in any sector other than the stuff that push, keeps the thing moving itself, the blood of the blood, oil. And so there's still piles of money to be made in uh, uh, extraction. And so that money is going to have to more and more directly subsidize that portion of uh, profit making in, in the core countries that the government is basically inflation limited to uh, continue because Twitter this thing that is now a load bearing part of a huge segment of like the media ecosystem and media uh, subjectivity of many American citizens the ones most likely to vote and, and actively participate in civil life uh, was built by the U.S. government just giving free money to uh, the tech sector. Extraction isn't infinite, no. No, it isn't. That's why it's... The whole thing is starting to shudder. But, uh, but for now, it is the only thing that has real value. And so Twitter was created in this context where money was essentially free. Profit was a, a second secondary consideration, which had never been true in any other capitalist enterprises. But now, if you didn't have that guarantee of free money, there's nothing worthwhile to invest in. Nothing is worth the risk because the returns are not big enough. Talking about motivation again, the motivation of the people in this system to carry out their, their assigned task of lending money, of, of, of building economic growth. And so Twitter, not it could have stumbled along. I mean, it would probably be doing better than it is under Musk right now just because he, he bought it for such an inflated price and then put that debt onto Twitter's books. But they would still be in like long-term trouble if like there's anything you can even conceive of that in this current economy as if there isn't only the kick the bucket next quarter. Uh, 
Uh, but it was, it was only made viable by that government infusion. And now, where the government is no longer infusing, the U.S. is trying to bring interest rates up, thereby bring capital into the United States, and that means bringing in this money from these literal money spigots in the Middle East. They're buying out the institutions, and they'll buy out Twitter too, probably. And in this context, we have this new wild shit where the neoliberal globalist uh, market, the, the, the international community that the United States had built to replace the Cold War uh, camps, is now being dismantled in the name of energy independence and like green transition. So the United States is now essentially declaring a trade war on everyone, including its allies, including its Japanese, Korean, European allies. Uh, and 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 essentially forcing them to either uh, drastically change their degree of government investment in uh, uh, alternative energy technology or be cut out of the market completely. Which means we're back to multipolarity. I mean, people who are flapping their their uh, fucking uh, flippers together every day about multipolarity and the need to be multipolar. Well, it's happening. Like you can cheer or not, like it doesn't really matter. This is just now where things have to go to fucking keep this thing going because yeah, what, what replaces this? And it's direct investment in infrastructure spending the old, the, the old way, but without, but that can't, uh, that cannot sit with this supposedly, you know, global economic order that does not have uh that that actually had at its heart the assumption that the united states would de-industrialize like that was the premise of the 70s uh sort of reorientation of global capitalism was to say the u.s is going to go away from being a a producer it is going to become just a consumer and now to change that is to break up the entire balance of powers so we're going to see what multipolarity looks like. It probably looks like greater threat of a thermonuclear war than we've ever had before. But we'll see. But now, I mean, we're in a situation where it's it's just a bunch of state capitalist enterprises trying to keep themselves afloat. You, I don't think you should think about any any ideologies Anywhere, including China or anywhere else, you have existing power infrastructures made up of uh, bureaucrats in government and outside of it in the private sector. Some like, uh, they're essentially networks that lace between organizations. They're people positioned in different organizations who don't just talk to each other in their organization, but talk to other members of other organizations. And those lateral networks are where power actually resides within the greater edifices of the system. They're all fighting to keep their phony baloney jobs, as government lepetamine said in Blazing Saddles. They're trying to keep growth up enough to prevent serious breakdown in their economic system. That is what they're doing. Everything is a, more than anything, a post hoc rationalization of what they have considered that they have to do 
that transcend political consideration and ideology just to keep the lights on, which they think of as unideological, and they, therefore they don't deliberate about ideologically. But of course, it's deeply informed by ideology, because the assumption is the only way to save society, the only way to save my nation or my race or whatever, I, however I consider it, is for this specific or uh, structure of power that I am in to persist. That is the assumption that is wrong, that all of them share, and it means that they will act in the same way to maximize growth, full steam ahead with total global uh, uh, conflict, economic competition that we have not seen since Europe in 1914. And honestly, it's like the best we can hope for is for a new Cold War, which is what they're already starting, but like an actual stable fronted one. But the problem is, is that the last Cold War was never not violent, obviously. It was peripherally violent. I guess the question is, can we reorientate towards a new Cold War between the United States and China that has a similar level of uh, peripheral violence. Now, is that the best case scenario for humanity? Probably not. But it is what the people in power are going to have on the menu of options to power them as they frantically react to, to, to things that are happening by their will, but without their conscious knowledge. I mean, yeah, like, in a new Cold War, we would be in the position of the the United States vis-a-vis -vis China would be in the position that the Soviet Union was vis-a-vis -vis the United States, buying time for an eventual dissolution. The only real question is, does the United States, at its heart, have enough human blood pumping in its veins to avoid going down and bringing everybody with us by launching nukes at the last moment? before the thing really dissolves? Or are there enough people at the heart, people at the heart to say, we're just going to have to change. We're going to have to change who we are and how we relate to each other. That's what now the, the Russians did that because they had a vision that was, you know, ideal in the West. We, we, we talked about it as, Oh, these are ideas of freedom and democracy that they're embracing. And that was the popular gloss, but the people who grasped for power in the post-Soviet uh, Russia were people who saw the prospect of plunder. They saw the prospect of the post-Soviet world being one where they personally could be enriched. And because the Soviet Union, God love it, had failed to produce a non-alienated subject, non-alienated from the institutions that they're embedded in, Plenty of people in positions of authority were like, I will take that deal. I will I will let you buy out my human soul. I don't think Gorbachev actually uh, counts. I think Gorbachev is a genuine believer in communism. And he was left to frantically flail and, and try to improvise around the material reality that the Soviet 
uh, economic model was in terminal crisis. And that to ch fix the problem at the heart of it would have required people in power to lose it. And they didn't want to do that. And so they let it fall apart. And many of them chose the buyout because it was a better option. Now, this time there will be no buyout. China's got enough of its own people to deal with. And, and, and we've already, we don't have any uh, more copper to strip. They had an entire state apparatus to sell off. Uh, maybe some people can be bought into the greater, you know, sinosphere, but only at the very, very top, not through the middle ranks like was like what happened in the Soviet Union. We'll see. A leveraged buyout of the uh, ruling class by the Chinese ruling class would be better for everybody, although that's still on the relative timetable. Like, the Soviet, the, the the Chinese buy us out, demobilize our nukes, and America does de decline into you know a drastically lower standard of living place, uh, which it would. But you know finds a social uh, uh, equilibrium at that point instead of launching nukes. Uh, that happens. You know, capitalism will still be eating through the core of Earth. And we will be dealing with that. So, like, establishing uh, uh, that equilibrium is going to take a lot of real, uh, real horror. And I think that's what has to be faced, is that whatever is coming will require transformation, which is scary. Because we've only ever known in our life things being different to be worse. That's part of the general structure of psychopathy that the culture reinforces. That you are the only real thing in the universe. That everyone else is fundamentally at odds with you. Except for maybe a few people that you love. you know, And by loving them you get to affirm some sort of like connection to a human project. But then you also use your love for them as a way to deepen your hostility to literally everybody else. Upper Volta with burgers. Very funny. Darwin 69420. Very nice. Darwin, yes. America will be Upper Volta with burgers. But I think, yeah, it's all going to be fine. For all of us, one way or the other. And the reason I believe that is because the opposite belief, that we're all doomed and that there's no point, leaves me in the exact same position that I would be otherwise, with the exact same other belief. Now, which one of those beliefs will guide me to action that I know deeper than reason are good for me? That's an easy question. That's not a difficult Contest. Therefore, the one that is true reveals itself. Because truth transcends reason. It has to. Like the reason that we think of as, as reason is actually self motivated, psychopathic uh, uh, individualism. And it's not anyone's fault because we live in a machine to create psychopaths. We're the only 
uh, social behavior that is rewarded by the structures of it are psychopathic ones. Oh, man. Someone wants to talk about the Maghreb. Ooh. Very, very, very depressing. I don't know. I don't know what you're even supposed to say that doesn't seem glib, you know? Like, there's horrors. But there's, you know, always horrors, and you still have to live. And how are you going to do it? The answer is never going to exist out there at that level from you. It's always going to be closer to home. No, I mean nothing new happened. It's just that they have a they're they're in a cycle there that uh, is particularly vicious. It's hard to see anything intervening with just a a uh, downward pressure, you know, because it's uh, it's 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 in the fucking sniper scope of the whole uh, global uh, in illness that we're suffering. France certainly didn't help. I think my favorite Western, someone asked, will have to always be the Wild Bunch because I saw it at a formative age and it was really, really cool. It made me read the Sam Peckinpah biography. It was like 600 pages. I read that in fucking like junior high. <laughs> I think that's normal. Is that normal? I'm just going to go out and say it's normal. Is anything, will everyone agree with me? Good. I did read Quentin Tarantino's book, uh, which, you know, would not have been published at all uh, if he had not been Quentin Tarantino, because it is very rough and uh, very conversational. You know, the man's a born podcaster. He has himself has said that if podcasts had existed in the early 90s, he wouldn't have been a director. And that is terrifying to think of, but absolutely true, because, you know, it's the lowest way. It's the easiest way to, like, get yourself out which is, you know, the whole urge behind that. Like, I need others to see this, this thing coming out of me. Uh, and, you know, yeah, but the, the only like the least, only the laziest and lowest of character are going to, are going to succeed there, podcasters. Uh, I honestly think Tarantino's talented enough that he still would have pushed past that barrier. Now, though, he's made 10 movies. He's proved his point. Now he wants the podcast. And he does have a podcast, which is amazing. After he made up that Rick Dalton died, he did a whole podcast about Rick Dalton uh, and his career, a retrospective analysis of movies that have never been made, and then did a fake interview of himself as Rick Dalton. It's like, it's embarrassing, I guess, if you're a fucking, you know, want to be a dork about it, but it's, it's just cool to watch somebody just vibing, you know, he's clearly having a good time. But the book is very interesting because it's essentially his fablements. Uh, instead of, I think that, yeah, he could never unironize enough to do a movie about his childhood in the, like the direct way that, uh, Spielberg is able to, but, uh, it's the same idea of showing you through his experiences as a child, 
how he came about having the weird shit that's in his movies. Like, uh, it, it gives you a key to read them psychologically. Uh, and that's the most interesting part because he talks at length about growing up in LA with his mom who left his dad and then he had a stepdad, but then she broke up with him and started exclusively dating black guys. And she was moving around in like, it's clearly a, uh, it's clearly not a stable household. He talks about like having to live with uh, roommates and his mom and, and, and he just gets immersed in like the black community in like Inglewood, California. And, friends like uh, 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 her, her 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 mom's sister's like fail brother named uh, Floyd who becomes his like surrogate dad and it just he's just giving you a prism to see the entire fucking like psychology running through his films just like Spielberg does with Fablemans which I enjoyed it's not great it's not one of his best films but it is, as a Spielberg fan, uh, it is uh, an interesting and enjoyable experience just to see, you know, the sparks fly as he's trying to give you his obviously sanitized version of the deep pathologies that uh, drive him to make films. Including wanting to bang his mom, apparently. And people have talked a lot about the, the last shot. And I got to say, uh, it's great. It's a wonderful last shot. I actually laughed. It's, it's, uh, it's fun. Yeah. Like you watch, you, you, you think about, you watch that movie and you watch his mom, like literally getting in a car and driving towards a tornado uh, and then having to like leave the family. And then you think of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was the last film before Fablemans that Spielberg has a writing credit on. And it's like, oh shit, he is, he's his mom. He's identifying with his mom. Look at this. And of course, there's the thing of, uh, Kate Blanchett in Crystal Skull having the same haircut as uh, as Spielberg's mom, but that honestly feels like uh, that feels like a uh, red herring. That feels like a chaff thrown up to protect the deeper truths that, of course, are not to be found on the glossy surface of a movie like that. Because, like, obviously, he's lying, <laughs> but lying in a very revealing way. Because, like, while he's lying, he's also, you know, showing you how he thinks. And that is fascinating. Yeah, and I can't stop thinking about that. Uh, what Ford says at the end. If the horizon's at the bottom, it's interesting. If the horizon's at the top, it's interesting. If it's in the middle, it's boring as shit. It's like, damn. Damn, homie, you broke it down. Uh, very excited about uh, the new Scorsese also. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited. Well, Scott's Napoleon, yes. I, I'm not a huge Ridley Scott fan, as people might know, but... Uh, I am a sucker for Napoleon. 
And I don't even care that uh, that Joaquin Phoenix plays him from when he's in his 20s. And you might go, oh, the guy's 50. But there are absolutely zero 20-something actors in Hollywood that could project Napoleonic swag. Just, can you think of one? Who could who could project that uh, that energy? If you t- say Timothy Chalamet, I will fucking fire you out of a cannon. Shut the fuck up. I watched that Dune, and guess what? He stunk. Sorry. Army Hammer's like forty five now, and that w- he would be able to do it. The kids, a f- I mean, R.I.P. But you know, he might be a cannibal. But damn. He's got he's got old fashioned uh, energy. I do not get this fucking Chalamet thing. I do not get why he is good. It seems like he is good for the same reason that pop stars are. They appeal to, to pubescent girls, and it's like that's fine. A movie star should hit, should make pubescent girls uh, uh, happy. They just should not only do that. If you don't do the other quadrants, if you cannot inspire libidinal uh, engines of the other quadrants, then you're not a movie star. But now, as the whole concept decays, it makes sense that now we have a fundamentally only pop stars left in, in the guise of movie stars. Ugh, they're saying you can't judge him until the next movie. I'm sorry. How about a movie be a movie one time? I know I've said this before, but my God. Fucking ripping people off with this bullshit. All right, I'm going to do some cards. We got a military asset. The M998 Hummer. Hummer, baby. The Hummer. This fucking vehicle is probably the most influential automobile of uh, the last 40 years. And what's fascinating is that after World War II, we did get a uh, uh, military-style vehicle enter public use. That's the Jeep. But the Jeep... uh, was always sort of an outlier. It was like its own thing. But uh, the fucking Hummer redefined the size and, and, and monstrosity of American uh, automobiles to the point where now we only sell vehicles that make this thing look like a fucking Kia. And they could run over an entire kindergarten class without anyone seeing it happen above the fucking uh, hood. But my God, you want to talk about bringing the war home. That's how we brought the war home, by cosplaying in these things. And these things got huge after 9-11. We wanted to bring the war home. And we are. We continue to, in stages. We have an installment plan of bringing the war home. Okay, uh, the Hummer is a high-mobility, multi-purpose wheeled vehicle, HMMWV. 
Used for cargo or troop transport, it can be fitted with the tow missile launcher system as an anti-tank vehicle. As a light attack vehicle, it carries the MK-19 automatic grenade launcher and the 50 caliber machine gun or 7.62 millimeter gun with armor protection for its crew. Hell yeah. Uh, I gotta say, a huge fan of the uh, MK-19 automatic grenade launcher. That thing, I know I'm saying, oh, our horrible militarism, but gotta give it up. For that thing. It looks like a fucking t-shirt cannon, and you can just destroy an entire building with it. Uh, manufacturer, LTV Missiles and Electronic Group. That sounds like somebody did that. That sounds like from somebody's basement. They just put out a shingle. You're like, yeah, that's us. They're having this done on Fiverr. Speed, 65 miles per hour. Range, 300 miles. Primary function, cargo slash troop carrier. Crew, one and seven troops. Remember when they weren't getting the uh, armor? This was a big scandal during the Bush years when you couldn't directly uh, challenge the war itself. We all were in, in, we were all imbricated with that blood. We had all agreed that there would have to be a blood sacrifice after 9-11, that Afghanistan was not sufficient, that we needed a spectacle of redemptive violence. That is what we all understood. That's why, honestly, at the end of the day, you talk too much about uh, the specifics of, you know, who was selling the Iraq war? What else could we have done? Uh, someone had to die for 9-11. There had to be a blood sacrifice, and it had to be commensurate with the the wound created by it. The, the degree of cultural fixation had to be matched. Afghanistan didn't do the job, and you had people in power who were in an exact position to direct that flow of anger. So instead of criticizing the war, which, of course, John Kerry, the fucking candidate in 2024, 2004, uh, voted for. There was a minute where they thought it was going to be Howard Dean, but everyone realized at the last minute, we actually all liked the war. We actually all thought it was a good idea. All of us. We kind of did. And I'm not saying everyone. You can say, oh, I marched against the war. People marched against the war. There was, yes. But among that crucial Center of gravity of American voters, uh, homeowners, they were in favor of the war, broadly. And they didn't want somebody running to shine a shameful light on that decision. They wanted somebody who would let bygones be bygones, and that's why they settled on Kerry. At least that's what that's how they thought. Maybe a left uh, anti-war person could have like cut through the bullshit. But the soft little... Uh, progressive marshmallows who vote in Democratic primaries didn't have the sand to find out because they had to get rid of fucking Bush. So these scandals about the war were all, they didn't do it right. They didn't give them enough killing supplies. And one of the big ones was that the Hummers were not adequately uh, armored. In fact, there's a joke in uh, Arrested Development about a uh, the like the golf cart, this golf cart had having a uh, better uh, like a golf cart Pope mobile thing, having better body armor than a Hummer. Okay. So we've got a military skill first aid. It's true. Somebody's asking about the Dean scream. I was there. I'm older than most of you people. I was a Deaniac, obviously. Because I was a little, I was a little good little uh, left liberal, still am probably in my heart. Let's be honest. What else am I doing with my time? But uh, 
when Bedeen collapsed in Iowa, like the two weeks leading up to Iowa, as everybody got cold feet, which is basically what it was, like part of it was that Gephardt basically decided to do a suicide run against Dean to stop him from getting the nomination, dumped all of his money. And because he was the union guy, he had just a spigot of money from the unions, dumped all his money uh, on trashing Dean. Uh, But it only worked because the fucking libs got cold feet. Maybe maybe Gephardt helped remind him of it, but they were probably never going to go for it. Uh, But that collapse was so instantaneous and so dramatic. He went from first by a comfortable margin to sucking hind tit in two weeks that the whole thing was popped. There was no way he was going to win another major primary. And that Dean scream was really just him acknowledging that. Him letting out the barbaric yawp to recognize that he, the thing he was grasping for would elude him. And then we backward mass that expression, ah, as the cause. And I think that's honestly how we think about, that's the main problem in our understanding of causality, especially when we're talking about politics uh, and history, is that a lot of the time what we're taking for causes are actually effects of things that have already happened. And the Dean scream is an example of an effect that became causal because it was a specific incident, which is much easier to understand and arrange uh, in a line with other incidents into a causality than an ambient thing, which is like hundreds of thousands of Iowans just pussying out because maybe they the, they heard somebody call him a latte lip uh, latte sipping liberal or something. I, I, somebody says they heard sucking hind tit for the first time since uh, their grandma. I probably heard, said it because I'm rewatching Deadwood, and uh, Al just said that. Find out how much Tolliver's paying Woo. I don't want to be sucking hind tit on disposal fees. So yeah, the Dean scream, I think, is what I would lead with if I was doing a uh, any kind of political science uh, seminar. I would say, here's a thing that has been historically remembered as the cause of a campaign's collapse, when it is actually the consequence of a deeper structural shift. And I think all of our jobs as social social scientists is to not even like argue about it, but just try to uh, try to document that terrain the deeper terrain than of the uh, incidents. It's the drill deeper than incident, which is hard. Uh, and it goes against our, uh, it goes against information's utility because we can only really use information if it directs to the sort of causal thing that something like the Dean screen would be part of. And, and uh, that's the thing. Political stuff, for the most part, is not actionable, and so we don't need to extract that level of specificity. We can go, we can rely on the general because we're not doing anything. Okay, the military skill here is first aid. 
First aid is emergency care given to the sick, injured, or wounded before medical personnel arrive. Many lives are saved by the quick, effective actions of people trained in first aid. The two basic concepts of emergency measures are stop the bleeding, start the breathing. In addition, it is imperative to prevent shock and dress any wounds to avoid infection. All military personnel are schooled in first aid. Civilians can learn about first aid classes by contacting their local Red Cross or hospital. I mean, what do you say about that? Yeah, correct. Don't really have anything to add. First aid, it's important. Okay, this is another this is another repeat, I think, of an of the reserves card. I think we did one about the reserves, so I'm not gonna do that again. I think we talked about Kent State. Ooh, we, uh did we have Tel Aviv or did we only have Jerusalem? Man, there's a lot of stuff about Israel in these cards. Fucking foreshadowing the next 40 years of uh, geopolitics. Yeah, I know. Where's the Schwarzkopf? This guy was the cape du tutti capi of the uh, Iraq war. He was on TV every fucking day in the early 90s. This big brick shithouse. I think he was actually like the grandson or the son of the uh, New Jersey uh, police, uh, state police commander who investigated the uh, Lindbergh kidnapping. Anyway, I'm talking about a guy and I don't even have his card. That's why how much we need Schwarzkopf. Anyway, uh, yeah, I think we did do Tel Aviv too. Business, intellectual, political center of Israel. Yeah, Scud missiles. We know the deal. There should not be this many repeats. Very annoying. Here, we, wait a minute. Austria again? Did we get Austria? I swear to God we got Austria again. I swear to God we already did Austria. I'll just skim it otherwise. 400 years until 1866, it had been a continental European uh, empire. They really dropped the fucking fumbled the bag there. Vienna was considered the intellectual capital of Europe in the 18th and 19th century. Yeah, there was a time in the early 1900s when Trotsky, Stalin, uh, Freud, Hitler all lived there. Uh, after World War One, Austria was reduced to its present power and size. Ooh. Sorry, Austria. Austria joined the United Nations in 1955 for Operation Desert Storm. Austria provided transportation and use of airspace. Well, isn't that nice of you? We propped your fucking country up after World War II. Uh, it's 32,374 square miles. Population is 7.62 million. The language is German. The predominant religion is Roman Catholicism. Thank you, Ferdinand II. Capital of Vienna, government type, Federal Republic, and the head of government, good old Chancellor Franz Vranitsky. I don't know what he's up to. Probably dead. Here we go. This is a badass airplane. These huge planes are really cool. Uh, this is a B-25, or sorry, B-52 Stratofortress. A fucking Stratofortress, okay? Strato Fortress. Is this the fucking plane that that dipshit uh, Navy pilot like just belly flopped into a field at an air show? Anyone know that story? Somebody knows that story. Somebody shout it out into the comments if they remember that guy's name. It's like Barnett or something. 
B-52 Stratofortress. For more than 30 years, the heart of the Strategic Air Command, the B-52 is a long-range heavy bomber that can fly at altitudes of up to 50,000 feet. With the use of aerial refueling, the Stratofortress can stay in the air almost indefinitely. More than 250 B-52s remain in readiness throughout the Air Command and 48 through hundreds of sorties during Operation Desert Storm. So they just fucking annihilated places. I believe these are the uh, airplanes that are being refueled erotically in the opening of Dr. Strangelove. I'm looking this up since nobody is helping me. Yes, that's it. Arthur Bud Holland. That's his name. Good old Bud Holland. Yep, a B-52 Stratofortress. If anyone's ever seen the video of that, it's just going sideways and then just... <clears throat> Right into the fucking, right into the ground. And the guy was apparently a completely irresponsible maniac who had gotten into near misses a bunch of times, and they just kept putting him in the fucking cockpit. Amazing. Love our military. Manufacturer, Boeing, our good friends at Boeing. You know, Boeing is one of those guys where if all capitalists acted like Boeing, you might be able to advance through productivity problems and like actually, you know, intensify like meaningfully technological inputs in a way that, you know, fixes things. Uh, because what capitalists don't do is, is once they have an industry, they basically try to sit on it and use their uh, influence over government to protect themselves as uh, incumbent vendors. Uh, Boeing came from a family that uh, made their money in uh, timber, which was the first big boom of the post uh, of uh, uh, the 19th century uh, Pacific Northwest. Like Seattle was a timber town. And the Boeings were timber barons. And then the fucking airplane shows up and Boeing, the dude is like, Oh fuck. And he just goes down and like begs to be flown up in one and eventually pivots to aerospace. He puts his company's capital behind like the development of this technology, which now none of them do. There is no room for that kind of, uh, of risk because of the, the general uh, declining condition of profit. Uh, the speed, 595 miles per hour. Range, 10,133 miles. Armaments, four 50 caliber machine guns and up to 60,000 pounds of bombs or 12 air-launched uh, cruise missiles. Uh, they've got machine guns. What are they for? Are they going to get like shot out of the sky? Do they got to do like the flying, the uh, Memphis Bell type shit? Not, you're not strafing anybody in that, are they? All right, uh, we've got noise, light, and litter discipline. <laughs> Look at this nerd. They literally have a card about being a good boy and picking up after yourself in the army, and the guy they got on the cover is this dork-ass private joker motherfucker. Look at this. It's very funny. Somebody, this is very funny. He's like, ah, excuse me, let me pick up that. What are you doing? Don't leave that MRI, MRE there. During missions, so please be quiet. I'm going to tell the sergeant that you're being loud. 
During missions, soldiers take every precaution to avoid giving the enemy clues to their position. Damn right. They reduce noise by avoiding unnecessary movement, turning down radios, and limiting talking. They cover reflective items and conceal flashlights. At least this guy does. He's the hall monitor who makes everyone does that. Make everyone do that. Uh, soldiers take all litter, such as empty food containers, to, to collection points or carry it until it can be properly disposed of. Survival is the reason for keeping litter to a minimum, whether you are a, a soldier or an environmentally-minded civilian. How many of them actually did that? I would like to know how many how many piles of uh, fucking MR opened MREs were just left scattered around the Iraqi desert. Uh, actually, uh, sir, you said that you'd be having us do two hundred more jumping jacks at the end of the of uh, the run. Sir, you forgot to give us jumping jacks. Yeah, also, burn pits much? How about some Gulf War Syndrome? Uh, intelligence file. Ooh, Palestinians. Ouch. Another touchy subject. I think I already said this one, too. Yes, we did this one, too. These are too many fucking doubles. I am outraged. This, is a, this should be a full set. What is Gulf War Syndrome? That's a very good question. I don't know if there is a conclusive answer to that. One reason to suspect that is because it's called a syndrome, which is when, when medicine kind of shrugs. Because a syndrome is a constellation of symptoms. It does not imply a necessary uh, single cause. And a lot of times that means that it's made up, you know. Uh, and to what degree is Gulf War Syndrome just PTSD that is manifested physically by people who can't confront their trauma? Who knows? I don't know. But we certainly did love burning uh, uh, trash pits of carcinogens. We love doing that. I mean, Bo Biden did get cancer after being around burn pits in uh, Iraq. God, that that is the most... Th Somebody really needs to do something good and interesting about the, the Biden brothers because it's just, it's too perfect. You've got this guy, incredibly ambitious senator, who's has wanted to be president since he was a kid, fueled by this deep uh, sense of uh, inadequacy, which all these guys have to have. And then he gets these two kids with who, of course, are born with the understanding that like this is their legacy. This is their birthright. And so one of them, the older brother, accepts the challenge. He is going to go on the hero's journey, much like uh, John uh, Joseph Kennedy Sr. did. Similar situation. Also a fucking shanty Irishman uh, dealing with inadequacy issues and raiding a brood and wanting them to advance. And uh, in the case of the Kennedys, JFK was a sort of a dissolute had and also riddled with uh, disease and injury. Uh, his brother Joe Senior was a all-around square-jawed Chad and he, uh, Joe Junior rather, and he was the father's choice to become president. And when PT one hundred nine happened, where dumbass Kennedy allowed his boat to get cut in half by a Japanese destroyer, like way to go, moron! 
Uh, he did some heroics, like sw- swimming a guy to safety. And uh, he gets, you know, a medal and he becomes a war hero. Joe's, Joe Jr. hears about this and he's a, a pilot in the Atlantic or in, in the uh, in the European theater. Uh, he's uh, in England and he volunteers for a suicidal bombing run with an overloaded plane that as soon as it takes off fails to achieve uh, total lift and smashes into the side of a fucking cliff. In a similar way, Hunter, he spits the bit. He can't have, hack it. He's going to be dissolute. But Bo takes up the challenge. And what does that mean? It means volunteering for the National Guard. And then it means going to Iraq to be a JAG officer, like Lindsey fucking Graham. But he does it next to a burn pit, and so instead of fulfilling his father's destiny and legacy, he fucking gets a brain tumor and dies, leaving the crackhead dipshit uh, as the only heir. It's an astounding narrative. Now, the real drama would be if he was forced to take power, uh, but right now he doesn't have to. He can just sort of take his dick out, which speaks to our general lack of catharsis as a society. Like, previous generations of this guy had to try to take power, uh, like, JF- like JFK after his brother died, like RFK, who is a very similar type of guy to uh, Hunter Biden. He did not accept the burden of, of public service as a young man. He did heroin. Uh, but now late in life, he's like coming to it. He's because he's coming to it through watching it on television. And, you know, he, he's not coming to at it through having taken the burden. By Hunter will probably never do that, but like he's just floating away into space. And he just loves filming himself smoking crack, which means it really shows how literally stunted he is because, you know, that is some fucking millennial Zoomer ass behavior. Like, oh, look at me. It's not enough for me to smoke crack. I have to film myself smoking crack. Like, what the fuck, man? Why, what, why, why, why do you have to reach out like this? And it's like because of the essential loneliness at his heart. Fascinating character, as I said. And I do love the idea that re- Republicans believe to a matter of existential certainty, which is that if a few more people than currently do found out about Hunter Biden, they would uh, vote for Donald Trump. They would switch. Like, they genuinely believe that. Like, the ones who don't believe in, you know, like, literal, the ones who don't believe in the literal argument for them rigging the election because they want to appear more reasonable less kooky than the ones we're talking about, Dominion voting systems, and also they don't want to get sued, they will say, well, of course, I don't think that there were any tampering with votes, but the state suppression of the Hunter Biden story is tantamount to rigging an election. That's the that's the smart version of that argument. And it's premised on something that's just as delusional as, as the fucking voting machine thing. Most people don't pay that much attention to stuff. And when they see the president's crack-smoking crack son, they go, oh, that's too bad. 
And it off probably reminds them of their own crackhead fail kids. And it makes them just feel sad for Joe Biden. It makes them feel bad for him and like him more even. And you have, like, people compared it to the Anthony Weiner thing, but first of all, Trump broke everything, and you have to acknowledge there's a pre-Trump and post-Trump era that Trump changed the uh, the audiences, best word for them, honestly, electorates, uh, the way that they metabolize stories of scandal and uh, wrongdoing among politicians. He just widened the aperture. He blew out the O-ring. So you can't compare those media environments. Secondly... You have the world historical unpopularity of Hillary Clinton that Joe Biden does not share. Joe Biden was personally popular at that time. And the fact that with the with the email story, as overblown as it was, you still have a thing that the candidate did. Hillary Clinton deleted a bunch of emails that were uh that she had privately stored. That's a thing she did. And then when the Anthony Weiner letter came out. That was about the emails that she, and of course you could say, oh, it's absurd to care about that kind of stuff. Well, people did. The Hunter Biden story was, he's got a dick. He likes to jack off and smoke crack. And you can say, oh no, Bursima and, and the illegal money. That is that is a fucking um, thicket of wilderness. Nobody is wanting to wade into that. Like you're being hoist by the same petard of like spectacle uh, destroyed, like pixie stick children that you turn the electorate into by unleashing Trump on them, and then you want to complain about it. It's like, I'm sorry. People aren't going to care about that. They didn't care about uh, uh, about Smirnov and Dropov and the, uh, Boris and Natasha doing shenanigans in Ukraine. They didn't care about that with Trump. They're not going to care about it with Biden. But for them, it's like, no, this is a thing that happened with a Democrat, and therefore, if it had happened again, we would have won again. And it speaks again to the same uh, confusing of signal to noise to uh, cause and effect that plagues our understanding of politics. Who left the coke in the White House is probably some fucking like uh, uh, Jonah Ryan style doofus, like some fucking uh, young, trying to be cool uh, staffer. I swear to God, we had Italy, too. I swear to God, we got Italy. God damn it. We're running low on new cards. I'm glad. I, I like the litter one, though. That was good. So I'll take that. We got the dud, indeed. Yeah, I'll probably vote for Cornell West. I don't know. If... Might vote, might not. It. Who cares? Live in California. I do like filling out the form. That is just a thing that is true of me. I, I, I got ensorcelled by the ritual of public awareness at a young age, and that meant having the act of voting turned into a meaningful act. And it's hard to kick that programming.
And I got to say, they do mail-in out here in California. It is the least satisfying way to vote. Because my favorite thing about voting is putting it in the machine. God, I remember. So when I was a kid in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, Manitowoc had voting machines, you know, like the kinds that New York City had, where you have all the levers and you go click, 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 and they pull a thing and it like puts a ticket out. I was, and they had a little model of it in the in the newspaper, like before an election, they would show you a sample of what it would look like and show you who was on the ballot. And I was just like, I cannot wait to fucking pull that lever, you know. I, I get to signal my autonomy, my my consciousness, uh, my civic virtue. I get to seal my own worth by doing this cool thing. And I, my first vote was at college and they did not have the machine. They had the Scantron, but I did like putting it in the, like the, I do like that. And then eventually I moved to New York and I was so excited because they had the old, they had the machine. And then I got there and they, literally changed that next year to the fucking Scantrons. But I got to say, like, the reason that Chomsky is right about voting for Democrats is not about, it's not the logic of voting for Democrats. That is actually probably wrong. I think his whole, he doesn't, he doesn't understand the dialectical relationship between Democrats and Republicans. He doesn't understand that you aren't really holding anything back by voting for Democrats because Democrats winning elections is part of the process that brings us to catastrophe and that generates catastrophe every day. But his reasoning for that is it takes five minutes. It's not a big part of your life. So if you think one party, one, one candidate would do less bad stuff, vote for them. And that is morally deflationary of voting. And that is what you should think about when you think about voting. Do not think, how will I, you know, stain my escutcheon by voting for a bad person or, you know, how much I'm, I'm validating all of the positive traits that I imagine myself to have by voting for the right person. And all that is just, uh, is just petty foggery. None of that is actually adheres to the vote. The vote gets thrown in the fucking hog sluice with all the other votes. So treat it like that. Treat it like the hog sluice thing. And it's like, if, oh, it's the only political thing I do, then how am I supposed to get a political identity and, and maintain it? You have to find something else. And that's good. Because maybe some of that will lead you into cooperative action with others. I think political identity just means more than any actual content. It is the idea of oneself as a political agent. And I think that that is one of the many sorts of subjectivity that this flavor of capitalism allows us to access. And the degree to which we are attracted to that mode of embodiment and self-conception is going to be determined, uh, as most of these things are, demographically and experientially. Things are going to happen to you 
that are going to drive you towards an, a relationship, an emotional relationship to the concept of politics and the concept of being a politically expressive individual. And the underlying assumptions are of a uh, recognition of oneself as a co-equal member of something, some social organ. Like, I believe that I am part of, and that my act of voting is an act of participation uh, in the churning of these organs that we are part of. I voted. I voted for Hillary in 2020. I did not, uh, and I, I had a lot of time, a lot of fun doing that. That, that. I thought that was a really good pick. Still do. She could win if you vote for her. Okay, I realized something to close out here about the uh, Republican field. We've said for a while that um, DeSantis is the Warren of the 2024 election. I think that's pretty clear. This is the uh, overvalued, media-friendly uh, internet candidate who uh, thinks they're leading a thing but is actually trailing it. Uh and now this guy, uh, Ram Swamy, is the mayor fucking Pete. We thought he was going to be the Yang, and he might still be the Yang. But right now, he is making a real push to be the mayor Pete. Uh, and you might say, who's Bernie? Uh, there is no Bernie because Bernie is good. So why would there be a Republican version of him? Absurd. All right, folks, I hope we had a good, I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you had a good time talking to me. I have a good time talking to myself. Bye-bye.